Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. Whatever you experience in the moment is really some combination of what's going on inside you and around you, but also what is in your head. Your brain's ability to reassemble past experiences for the purposes of predicting and making sense. Welcome back to episode seven of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with appointments at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Barrett is among the top 1% most cited scientists for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She has also authored two really popular science books for the public, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, and more recently, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Today, we're talking about the emotional experiences of everyone, really, but with a special emphasis on nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. And I was particularly blown away by the way Dr. Barrett talks about prediction, the way our brain uses past experiences to anticipate the future and really create our present moment. This has so many implications for fundraising, fears and discomfort, and how well we fundraise overall. But the best part is that she gives really tangible strategies to deal with this, to overcome stress and anxiety, I can't wait to share this with you. So let's go meet Dr. Barrett. Thank you so much, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, for joining me today on What the Fundraising. I am thrilled to have you here and so excited to dive into this conversation. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So as I mentioned, I have been talking about your book, your research for a long time, but let's just start with you introducing yourself to everyone and giving us some background on your incredible work. I am a university distinguished professor of neuroscience and psychology at Northeastern University. I have research appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm the chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at MGH at Massachusetts General Hospital, where we educate judges and lawyers and other legal actors about the use of neuroscience and just generally about science in the courtroom. I, you know, my career has had a really, say, windy path, but I think that's true for most people. Most people, I think I know one person who actually had a plan in high school for what he wanted to do, (laughs) and then he just did it. So that's not me. I guess if you looked at my career, you could say like I retrain in a new scientific discipline about every seven years or so. (laughs) I started off as a clinical psychologist and then obtained training in other domains of psychology, in physiology, in neuroscience, um, now in 
some engineering. And I would say that I started off studying the nature of emotion, like what are emotions, how do they work? How does your brain create them? And that turned out to be a really useful kind of a lens for just understanding brain function in general. So, you know, that three pound blob of meat between your ears is the most expensive organ you have, metabolically speaking. And so what's it good for? How does it work? There's a lot of misunderstanding about how brains function. And I just find that fascinating. And the sort of modern science, the modern scientific understanding is really counterintuitive, which is also really fun in a way. So that's what we really study now in the lab. I run a pretty large lab by most standards in psychology and in neuroscience. I would say we have about 25 full-time scientists in the lab, plus, you know, undergraduate scientists, you know, every year. So on top of that, we have the undergrads. And it's a really lively, very diverse group. We study a lot of different things. Emotion is just one of them now that we study. Well, let's talk about emotion because I am fascinated in the way that emotion plays such a critical role in nonprofit leadership and fundraising and, you know, everything really in life. But I think oftentimes from my experience in the nonprofit sector, we tried to pull emotion out of, even when we talked about the science of fundraising or the art of fundraising for 13 years, I felt like I was never able to express or share how I felt emotionally as a fundraiser, that there wasn't really space for that. And so, you know, I'm particularly interested in in talking about that piece. So tell us just like at a high level, how are emotions made? You know, it's actually easier to say how they're not made. So the so start there, I think. And that is, you know, there's a very persistent belief that emotions are baked into your brain from birth, that your brain has some kind of ancient part, you know, this ancient inner beast where your emotions and instincts live and, and that there are sort of inborn circuits for emotion and that they trigger and then they cause you to do and say things that are, you know, maybe ill-advised at times. So um, something in the world will happen and you'll, it will trigger one of these circuits. And so you'll react and that you react with consistency that what you're doing in your face, what happens in your body, the way that you feel, the actions you take. Every time this circuit is triggered, you know, there's, there's a lot of consistency there so that somebody else could look at you and just read emotion on your face or in your body language. And almost everything I just said isn't true. Mm. <laughs> That's the belief though, right? And that really rationality, which is, you know, newly evolved and lives in your cerebral cortex is really keeping a damper on these emotional circuits so that your, your brain is kind of like a battleground between your desires and your rational self. All of that is, it's a really popular and very, very, I would say, successful story, but it's not mm. actually scientifically valid. That's not what's happening under the hood. It feels that way to us, particularly those of us who've been raised in the West, uh, in a Western culture, but that's actually not how your brain works at all. So the actual description of what's happening is a little harder to, um, you can't just give a little snippet and, and, <laughs> uh, and have it make sense. But what I would say is that your brain is actually always guessing, always predicting. It's always guessing what's going to happen next. Hmm. And those guesses 
are functionally attempts to or opportunities to regulate your body to plan for action and to make sense of the sensory consequences of those changes. So if we were to stop time right now, just stop time, your brain has uh, a representation, a story that it's telling itself of what's going on around you in the world and what's going on inside your own body. And then it makes a guess about what's going to happen next. And those guesses are, does your heart rate have to go up? Does it have to go down? Do you know, do you have to breathe more deeply or do you have to breathe more shallowly? Do you have to get glucose into your bloodstream really quickly because you have to do something really effortful or is what you have really okay for the moment? Those guesses are prepares preparations for action for like literally physical movement. Should you smile? Should you stand up? Should you run away? You know, should you hug someone? And then there are also, these guesses are also sort of prediction of what the sensory data mean that you're exposed to. So if your brain is predicting that you're going to hear a loud bang, is what caused that loud bang? I mean, your brain doesn't know, right? Mm. Your brain only receives the information about the loud bang. It doesn't know. Was it a car backfiring? Was it a gunshot? Did somebody slam a door? If you're anticipating that someone's going to smile, if your brain is predicting that you're going to see a smile on someone's face, is that smile a smile of welcome? Is it a smile of threat? Is it, uh, you know, what, what's the likely cause of that? If your brain is predicting that your heart rate is going to go up and you will feel your heart thumping in your chest, then it's also predicting well, what is the cause of that thumping? Is it because mm. you're anxious? Is it because you're exhilarated? Is it because you just had too much coffee? So all of this is happening automatically, effortlessly, continuously. You're really not aware of it. By the time you become aware of taking an action, you know, it's several seconds beyond when that action was planned. So your brain is basically just doing this continuously, using your past experience to anticipate the future, which becomes your present. And so what this means is that emotions are not baked into your brain from birth. Your brain is making emotions on the fly as you need them. And what it's doing is it's making sense of what emotions are, the way that your brain makes sense of what is going on inside your own body in relation to what is going on around you in the world, right? So a tightness in your chest can be indicative of many different emotional states, depending on how your brain understands what that tightness, what caused that tightness and what to do next about it. Mm. Okay. So this is so interesting so when you think about the prediction piece, how, and maybe this isn't even the right question, but how often is it that we are predicting for something maybe more like quote unquote negative because it's in anticipation of something maybe we need to protect ourselves around or be prepared to have some resilience around. Does that prediction tend to be more negative or more positive? I don't think it's really one or the other. I do think that um, it really depends on the person. It depends on that person's developmental history. We all have, I mean, your brain is basically using your past to make sense, to predict your future, to make sense of your present. It's right. So if I, during my TED talk, for example, I show this blobby black and white image and most people haven't seen it before. And when most people look at it, they see black and white blobs. That's it. So they are what we would say experientially blind 
to what the image is because all they see are the, these black and white blobs. And then I give them an experience and then they look at the blobs again. And now all of a sudden they see something, mm. they see an actual image that they what didn't see before. And it's because now when their brain searches their past experience, they have a new past experience that wasn't there before that they can use. And it, what it does is it helps people understand that whatever you experience in the moment is really some combination of what's going on inside you and around you, but also what is in your head, your brain's ability to reassemble past experiences for the purposes of predicting and making sense. And so some of it has to do with that. I would say, though, that the most pervasive example of making something negative that doesn't have to be negative is the way that we treat increased arousal, feelings of arousal in our culture. So when your brain can't predict something really well, it attempts to learn, learn something new. So what your brain is always doing is comparing its predictions to the data, the sense data that it gets from the sensory surfaces of your body. So it predicts what you'll see. And then literally, you know, sense data comes into your, through your retina up to your brain, and it's making those comparisons. And if there's information there that it hasn't encountered before, that's called prediction error. And it's a cue that your brain can learn that error and then update its ability to predict, and then it will predict better the next time. So what does your brain do when it can't predict very well? Well, it raises certain chemicals become increased and your heart beats faster and you start to feel really jittery and kind of worked up and maybe even a bit more alert. But in our culture, the immediate go-to explanation of this is anxiety. So people make anxiety out of an increase in arousal that doesn't have to be anxiety. And what I mean by that is, if your brain is making sense of an increase in arousal as anxiety, that will lead you to experience the arousal as negative, as unpleasant. And also it leads you to behave in a certain way. But if you experience the arousal as a, just a sign that things are ambiguous or uncertain, and so maybe you should search for more information, or maybe it's an opportunity to be determined. There are many ways that you can use it as a cue to construct something, a completely different experience like awe or wonder to, for a moment, you know, you become a speck. And so your uncertainty becomes a speck. And so you're giving your, you know, your nervous system a little break. I mean, uncertainty and ambiguity is probably one of the hardest things for a human nervous system to have to deal with. The whole reason why our brains, or I shouldn't say the whole reason, but there's a very strong metabolic reason for your brain to be predicting and correcting as opposed to reacting. And that is it's attempting to reduce uncertainty, which is extremely metabolically expensive and metabolic expense doesn't feel good. It just feels really unpleasant. Like think about exercising, you know, when you're like 20 minutes into it, it starts to, you know, really suck. <laughs> um, and but that's because you're metabolics, you're deliberately sort of metabolically taxing your system. And so I guess what I would say is that what we have is an epidemic of uncertainty <laughs> and ambiguity. And that is taxing for human nervous systems, but it doesn't necessarily have to be anxiety. And I know that this sounds crazy to people who haven't really read the science and understood it. And frankly, if somebody was just saying this to me, I'm not sure that I would really believe them. But, you know, as a scientist, this really is how it works. And I'll just say one other thing. 
you know, I've been recovering from spinal surgery for the past couple of months and something really interesting happened. And that is when, um, so I had a spinal fusion and it was all very unexpected. And, you know, so anyways, as I recover and the pain recedes and I start to become more active, I start to have unexpected sense data coming from my body. Like I have titanium rods and screws in my back now and I'm not expecting it. And so it's very uncertain. It's very ambiguous. Like, what is it? And so what are these sensations? Are they pain? So is this pain or is it just something unexpected that's slightly uncomfortable? Because if it's pain, I'll stop moving. If this is just unexpected sensation that is slightly uncomfortable, I'll probably keep moving and maybe even move a little more. And it turns out it's really hard. You can't really tell actually. And the reason why you can't tell is because you're constructing it. There's nothing to tell. There are just sensations. You have to make sense of them. There's, it's the same thing. Like if you've ever had, you know, work done on your teeth, you know, and you, or you have a filling or like a tooth removed and you just find your tongue, like constantly probing, probing, probing. It's because there's sense data there that is unexpected because your brain hasn't learned to filter it out yet. So it's there. And your brain is basically all of that tongue probing is, is learning because your brain really doesn't like uncertainty. I mean, all of us sort of put ourselves in situations where sometimes things are novel and uncertain, but certainly different people have different tolerance for that. But in general, it's a very expensive metabolic state for you to be in. And so I would say, when I say that anxiety is at epidemic level, And then I say, but, you know, you could construct something different out of that arousal. I'm not trying to minimize people's suffering, but I am saying actually that you can reduce your suffering a little bit by becoming mindful about how your brain works to construct meaning and actually give experience to create experiences out of this meaning making process that it's constantly going through to anticipate sense data and make sense of them. Oh my gosh. (laughs) There's so much about what you just said that I want to kind of double click on, but I'll just say, you know, quickly, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your back. I actually had a very similar experience a few years ago dealing with chronic pain in my neck. And I read this book called How to Heal Your Back. And I'm not sure what you think about the science behind it, but for me, the awareness around how sensory data moved between my brain and my body was so empowering for my pain. Like just being able to do sort of what you talked about where I would start to feel a sensation that sometimes was unknown, but sometimes also felt like, like my brain was kind of quickly going to, oh, this is the beginning of injury. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so here's, I talk about this and how emotions are made. And I think it's really important that people understand that every experience you have, every action you take is caused by partly what's in your head and partly what's going on around you or inside you. I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. I'm saying that in a scientific way. So let's say you had tissue damage. Mm -hmm. Let's say you hurt your neck in some way. The first time you hurt your neck, the sensory surfaces in your neck are going to send information to your brain. Like there's tissue damage here and your brain will learn that and you'll feel pain. And then as you heal, your brain will track that and it will learn or it might not, right? It might not learn. So sometimes the brain doesn't learn prediction error. 
sometimes, especially if you're stressed, if you're metabolically encumbered in some other way, like because you're stressed financially, socially, because you're not sleeping enough, there are all kinds of reasons why this can happen. And scientists don't understand all the reasons why it happens. But sometimes the brain doesn't take in the prediction error and it just goes with its prediction. So chronic pain is your brain predicting what's called nociceptive input from the from your body, information about tissue damage for your body, but it's not there. And so chronic pain is actually a brain disorder. It's not really a disorder of the body, although it can cause disorder in the body if it goes on for a really long time. So it can actually change the peripheral nerves, the wiring in your peripheral nerves, if it goes on for a really long time, like years. But I think to say that it's a brain disorder doesn't mean it's not real. It's extremely real because frankly, everything you feel, you feel in your brain. You see with your brain. You don't see with your eyes. You see with your brain. Your eyes could be working perfectly. If your brain isn't working perfectly, you won't see. <laughs> you smell in your brain. You taste in your brain. Everything is happening in your brain. If I say to you, have you ever walked around with a song in your head that you're just not able to get out of your head, you can just hear it and it's driving you nuts. What your brain is doing is changing the firing of its own auditory neurons so that you hear something that isn't there. And that is how prediction works. When I say that your brain predicts, I don't mean that some like kind of abstract kind of description. Your brain is literally changing the firing of its own neurons before the sense data arrive. So it starts to prepare your experience before you have it so that you're just ready to have it. And once the sense data come, if they confirm the prediction, that's it. The neurons are already firing in a way that explains that input. So poof, your experience emerges really, really quickly. It feels like a reaction. First, T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Okay, there's something that you just said that I'm really curious about for fundraisers, because as I'm kind of putting this together, right, the anxiety piece, the interpretation of anxiety, you know, I think about fundraisers experience anxiety at so many points, kind of like pieces, right? They experience that jolt of anxiety when they're going to press send on an email or when they're picking up the phone to just make a phone call or walking into a donor meeting where they're going to make an ask, right? And so they are it sounds like, you know, making a lot of predictions around what is going to happen, what might happen based on their environment, based on past experience, or they're feeling anxiety because they can't predict, right? And this is one of the questions I get asked so often is, well, how do I prepare for any question the donor might ask me, right? One of the biggest pieces of anxiety is that uncertainty that they're going to get a question that they're not prepared for, right? So I'm thinking about, you know, everything you're talking about, them sort of walking into this room and then they see the face of the donor. And what if the donor isn't smiling? 
And then they go into an interpretation of the donor's current emotional experience. And how does that impact theirs? So the first thing that I would say is there's a lot to unpack (laughs) in what you said. Okay. So the first thing I would say is when you are uncertain and, or something's ambiguous and your brain makes anxiety. So it's giving an interpretation to sense data, right? What you feel is authentic. That's authentically anxiety. Your brain's making anxiety and you feel it. My point is that your brain can also authentically make something else in those moments. And then that's what you'll feel. And really, if you practice it enough, it really does work that way. And what your brain is, basically what you're doing is you're teaching your brain, you're sort of teaching, your brain's teaching itself to make different concepts, to make different sort of groupings of knowledge, to draw on different past experiences to make sense of the present. So, you know, right before my TED talk, if anybody had a heart rate monitor on me or any, you know, I could feel my heart beating in my fingertips. Like I was anxious. Well, in that moment, I basically constructed determination. And there's actually research to show that if you train yourself to So your brain is automatically using your past to predict and make sense of the present, right? You can't really easily go back and change your past. I mean, that's what psychotherapy tries to do. And what you can do is change your present, invest, just like you would invest energy in exercise. You can invest energy in training yourself in the present to seed your brain to predict differently in the future. And so, for example, when you're not with a client, when you're not sending an email, when you're not, you know, when you're not in that situation, you know, you can put yourself in conditions of uncertainty and attempt to make something other than anxiety. And if you practice, you'll be able to do it. You know, it's kind of like driving. It, it's effortful at first and it's a big investment of energy because you're basically attempting to teach your brain something new. But like driving, if you practice it enough, it becomes pretty automatic. So the first thing that I would say is, before you send that email or before you walk into that room or before you have that Zoom call, the arousal that you're feeling is probably uncertainty. And that means that probably I would think the best stance to take is one where you're attempting to construct determination or maybe curiosity. Mm. So usually the thing that helps the most when you're uncertain is to collect more information. And oftentimes when people are faced with uncertainty, particularly in, you know, a social situation, some of that uncertainty really is not as much about the job they're doing as much as it is about their uncertainty about what the other person will think of them. Mm -hmm. And that social evaluation So, you know, I'm a professor, I'm a professor, I stand up in front of hundreds of college students, and I'm supposed to know the answer to every single thing that they ask me, except I don't actually know Mm. the answer to every, you may ask me something I don't know the answer to. So it's okay for them to know that I don't know the answer to everything. This is something actually, that took me a long time to learn, you know? That most of the time, when you're anxious about what other people think about you, it's because you're grasping to aspects of identity 
to making meaning about yourself that isn't really necessary in a given situation. You know, my husband told me something once that I put in the book because I thought it was just brilliant. This is really his after, you know, me ad nauseum talking to him about this work. <laughs> he said to me, so are what is what you're saying that like another person, what they think about me, it's just like electrical activity in their brain. And I'm like, yeah, actually it is. It's just electrical activity in their brain. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what your reputation is. It's just electrical activity in their brain. That's what someone's evaluation of you. If somebody's mean to you, if they're insulting to you, if they, you know, that's just electrical activity in their brain. Hmm. When you think about it that way, it kind of really disarms it. Yeah, it takes the sting (laughs) out of it, right? Yeah. So I guess that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that you can't read someone's emotion in their face. You can't read emotion in their body movements. Body movements and facial movements are not a language. There is no such thing as body language. That's just, Hmm. it's a nice story, but it's not true. Your brain is inferring the meaning of those movements. And a person could be smiling or frowning or, you know, have their eyes drift away from your gaze for all kinds of reasons that you are unaware of. Hmm. Maybe the person slept badly. Maybe they have something else on their mind. Most often when you worry that someone is evaluating you, really that person's just thinking about themselves. Mm. (laughs) And so, you know, they're wondering what you think uh, about them. So I would say it's really a bad idea. Even the most confident person, no matter how confident you are, that you can read other people, you are not reading, you are inferring. Mm. Referring very automatically and often effortlessly, and you're doing it predictively based on your experience with that person or with people who are like that person or in situations that you've been in before that are similar to this one. And, you know, I would attempt to be more curious and try to elicit more information from that person to try to understand, you know, where their brain is at right at that moment, Mm -hmm. as opposed to thinking that, you know, because you don't. You're just inferring. So in uncertainty, if your life physically isn't on the line, curiosity is always the best. I think it's always the best strategy to take. Even in moments where you just feel like you know, you probably don't. I love that. It's actually funny that you're talking about this because curiosity is actually my like number one, like business and personal value for exactly that reason. I feel like it helps me regulate kind of everything in my life is like to get curious. And I have found that even in the situations where I feel like I know the most, that is actually almost when it serves me the most. Like even in that situation of chronic pain, getting curious about the pain, even though I was so sure I understood it because it felt so, so sure in my body that I was injured. When I got curious about where it was coming from or why I was getting certain inputs, it really just opened up the possibility of a different like lived experience for me. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, I think that's a really important thing that you did. And actually the research shows that in chronic people who are suffering from chronic pain, if they start to become curious about the sensations rather than immediately just constructing pain, they can actually learn to pick apart the sensations and separate. So they can feel discomfort without feeling distress. And that actually research shows um, reduces the dependence on opioid drugs. So 
back surgery is not a really fun thing to have. Uh, if I could have avoided it, I would have. But actually, I thought of it as a really good opportunity to put my money where my mouth was, you know, like, okay, I sort of talk, you know, I've written this book, and I'm talking about these things. And, you know, so I knew that I was going to have substantial uh, discomfort, and that I would actually feel pain for some time. Mm -hmm. I knew that there was a risk of developing chronic pain, because there's always a risk of developing chronic pain. But, you know, we just are living through pandemic, we're all I often talk about, you know, your brain's regulation of your body as your, your brain is running a budget for your body. It's not budgeting money, it's budgeting glucose and salt mm -hmm. and so on. And so you can talk about, you know, making deposits and withdrawals from your body budget and so on. And, you know, so we're all walking around with practically bankrupt body budgets in this environment. And that's actually what leads you, your brain to ignore prediction errors. So I thought, great, you know, I'm studying, I'm having back surgery at this really, at this time where we're all maybe suffering from a little bit of a, you know, deficit in our body budgets. And that's a really perfect opportunity for me to develop chronic pain. So I'm kind of going in with all of this stuff. And in moments where the pain was really intense, like for those of you who've had surgery, you know, they're always asking you, what is it on a 10 point mm. scale? And we could, if this were a conversation about pain, there was so much to say about that. But so like when I'm eight, you know, what do I do? Mm -hmm. Do I distract myself from the pain? No, no, I don't. Because distracting yourself is taking you away from the sensation. So your brain is not able to learn. It's just going to keep predicting based on what you already know. So instead, what I would do is I would surprisingly focus directly in on the pain. I would focus my attention on the pain quite directly. And it didn't make it more intense. What it did was it would allowed me to pick it apart. Mm. And the analogy that I often give people is anybody who's ever learned to paint, mm. to paint realistic images, objects. So you're taking a three-dimensional object like a glass and you're trying to render it on a two-dimensional canvas. Now, if you just look at this glass and you see a glass, you're ignoring a lot of detail in this glass. You're just seeing a glass. And so if you try to take this three-dimensional object and draw it on a two-dimensional canvas, it's going to be a pretty crappy looking drawing. Hmm. But if you start to pick it apart into its pieces of light, so you start to focus in on the details that usually your brain is not attending to, if you start to pick this apart into pieces of light and you then paint or draw the pieces of light on the canvas, you will get a pretty decent looking three-dimensional object rendered in two dimensions. Mm. Unless you're me, because I'm like a really, I'm really bad. I'm really <laughs> bad. I'm going to go try. But, <laughs> but actually, but it was really, you know, I mean, yeah. the point is that you can change your focus on the details that you attend to. And by doing so, change the meaning that you make out of those sense data. And that's true for everything that you do, including your interactions with potential donors, including interactions with your coworkers, including interactions with your family members, um, including the sense data that come from your own body. Um, this is a, it's not a magic bullet. It's not like, you know, a, a superpower or, you know, Jedi mind tricks or whatever. You really have to, it's like any skill. You have to practice it. And if you practice it, you can get pretty good at it. And you need to practice it when you don't need it, right? Like I, if you want to reduce anxiety in asking people for things, 
then you need to practice transforming your anxiety into something else. Meaning you have to get yourself into an anxious state, let your brain construct it, and then try to deconstruct it and construct something else. Mm -hmm. Now, every year, I'm from Canada originally, I learned to drive in the ice and snow. And every year, now I live in Boston, after the sign of the first snow, first big snow, I get into my car and I deliberately try to put myself into a spin so that I can remind myself how to get out of it. Right. It's just I love that. In my course, I do something called the seven day no challenge where I have folks pick a group of kind of like low stakes donors. Right. And I have them start to make phone calls, but what they're actually, their goals are actually around getting a certain amount of no's, but it does put them into that anxious state and start to help them bring awareness around what's happening. How can they shift? So I love everything you're saying. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much for fundraisers to take away from this. And I want to make sure we have, I'm just watching time. Could you say really quickly a little bit about how we sort of regulate each other's nervous systems with this piece? Like maybe back to where you were talking about anxiety and converting anxiety. Will you just tell us a little bit about why that matters in terms of regulating the nervous system of the people we're with? Yeah. I just wanted to go back to what I will do that, but I just want to go back to one point that you asked me about, you know, the uncertainty of a donor asking you Mm. something you can't answer. So I don't know, I'm not a fundraiser. Well, I mean, I sort of am a fundraiser in the sense that I run a lab and every grant application Mm -hmm. is like begging, you know, it's like an advocacy Mm -hmm. document for please give me money so that I can do this research. But when there's something that you don't know, you could just say, I don't know. I'll get back to you on that. I'll go look it up. I will respond to your question and I will bend over backwards to be responsive to you. So this actually is relevant answer to the question that you just asked me. We are the caretakers of each other's nervous systems. Humans are social animals. We evolved as a species to metaphorically make deposits and withdrawals in each other's body budgets. This is something I I talk about in How Emotions Are Made and also in the new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, which is a little set of essays. You could read it on the beach, really. It's- it's I love it. And we'll link below (laughs) for people to get it. But, you know- What you're doing when you raise a child is you're managing that child's body budget and the child's brain is being wired by those efforts and eventually learns to manage its own body budget to some extent, but never 100%. If a person is regulating their own nervous system, managing their own body budget almost exclusively on their own, they're going to die some number of years early which is actually when you're lonely or you are socially isolated, you are more at risk for certain types of metabolic illnesses and you're more likely statistically to die earlier than you would otherwise because your nervous system is too much of a burden for your brain to manage all by itself. We evolved that way. So we are constantly regulating each other and we regulate each other by what we do and also by what we say. This is hard for people to understand, particularly It's hard for people to accept, particularly in a culture where we prize, we really prize individual rights and freedoms and especially free speech as we should. But we also have to recognize that we have socially dependent nervous systems. And that is a reality. Both of those things are a reality. And what you say and what you do impacts the nervous system of the person that you're interacting with and they return the favor, Hmm. you know? So whether you smile whether you lean in, if your heart, 
you know, if you and you're having a conversation with someone and you trust each other and you like each other, your heart rates will synchronize probably because your breathing synchronizes. Sometimes movements actually synchronize to some extent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens usually when people are feeling, you know, in sync, like they're feeling Mm -hmm. like they're really connecting with each other. It's because they actually physiologically are connecting with each other. And that means that if you're feeling jittery because there's some increase in arousal in you, the person that you're interacting with might not be consciously aware uh, that that's the case, but it's possible that their nervous system will react in kind. Mm. You know, as a clinician, when I trained as a clinician, one trick that I learned called pacing, I would match their breathing rate and then I'd slow my breathing down. Wow. And they would, and they would, they would feel more comfortable because they're, because breath is really the only way that you can grab a hold of your autonomic nervous system and try to regulate it. It's really the only way to do it actually that we know of. And that's why, you know, things like yoga and anything mm-hmm. with a lot of singing in a choir, you know, anything mm-hmm. with a lot of breath work, the more control you have over your breath, the easier it is. I mean, you can't completely control your autonomic nervous system, but it is, it does give you a little bit of a a tool there. And so you can make someone feel anxious or make them feel comfortable just by virtue of, you know, the state of your own nervous system combined with the words that you use, which will invite the person that you're interacting with to construct certain types of experiences. So this is true with doctors and patients. It's true with parents and kids. It's true, Mallory, for me and you. Like if we were sitting in a coffee shop and I use certain words with you, those words are like literally little invitations for your brain to construct experiences, make sense of your own physical state and the sensations from your state in a particular way. So we can very much influence the extent of comfort and discomfort that people feel in interacting with us just by the state of our own bodies, but also the words that we use and the actions that we take towards them, how much eye contact we make. And all of these things really influence these more automatic processes that go into constructing or making emotions in the moment. Wow. Okay. There's so much for us to sort of take away and unpack. And I'm probably going to write like quite a few blogs even on this conversation. I just want to thank you so much for having this conversation with me today and talking to fundraisers about this really important work. Tell us where can folks find you? And we mentioned the the two books again, and then we'll just wrap. I'd love to invite you to share a nonprofit that you love for folks who want to go check it out and give if they can. Sure. So if people want to find me, you can go to my website, lisafeldmanbarrett.com. It's all one word, like my whole name.com. On that website is an email address, but also there are free articles. There are free lectures that I videotaped, like if I'm giving a public lecture, almost all of the podcasts where links are available, you can find them there. They're all of my popular writing is there, like for the New York Times and The Guardian and other papers. So it's a wealth of information that's all free. I do have two popular books. I mean, I, I have also 250 academic peer-reviewed articles, but I'm sure people don't want to. If you want to read those, it's it's affective-science.org. 
affectivescience.org with a dash in the middle. But like I said, I don't know if you want to read those, but if you do, they're all there. But my popular books are How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And you can see all of the reviews and actually there are links to purchasing the book on the website. The new book is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. I wrote it. My husband calls it the first neuroscience beach read. I did write it. I wrote it for, you know, I love to read essays and I read a lot of essays and I've always really admired the the writing form of an essay. So I thought I'd give it a go and see if I could do it. And I like to read essays in the bathtub at night before I go to bed or actually sometimes on the beach when I go uh, for a summer holiday. So I thought I want to write, I want to write something that's kind of like fun and interesting, but that like leaves people you know, maybe gives them a couple of nuggets of neuroscience that they can impress their friends with at a dinner party, but then leaves them thinking about big questions like what is human nature and what kind of human are you? What kind of human do you want to be? And things like that. So the essays are quick reads, but they do linger with you and make you think about um, these sort of larger questions in the context of your own life. Seven and a half lessons about the brain. It's also there on the website with all of the reviews. So I'm really a fan of nonprofits. My daughter actually is about to go to business school to do an MBA because she wants to work in the nonprofit sector. She's actually going to go out into the world and directly help people, which is fantastic. I have a lot of nonprofits that uh, I'm very attached to. So it's hard to pick one. I would say the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior is a nonprofit. It actually, today, for example, there was an article in the New York Times in the opinion section about the teenage brain and um, the way that police officers are being trained to understand. You know, so that's something, that's like an example of something that we have written briefs on and that we educate judges about the arrest and charging and sentencing of youth and relative to what their brains actually can do <laughs> given their developmental stage. And so there are a lot of different topics, but that's a that's a really great nonprofit that I feel, you know, I donate my time to them basically and I have their inception. I don't get paid for that work. I it's completely done pro bono because I think it's so important. I also though really like Heifer International. So this is a a nonprofit where you donate you can purchase for a family in some other part of the world animals for them. So you can purchase a cow or for a family or a flock of chickens or really what you're doing is you're sort of, you're empowering people to help themselves by giving them resources that they wouldn't otherwise have. I just really like that idea very much. So that's one that we've actually supported, I think, since we became aware of it. So probably more than a decade now. Wow. Amazing. And I will, I'll have those links below this episode. And I just want to thank you again for your work and, you know, having this conversation. I know we could have talked forever, but I, I'm really grateful for your time. And thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. be honest. The moment that I ended this call, I wanted to go and send the raw footage to everyone I knew. The implication of Dr. Barrett's work for all of the elements in our lives is tremendous. 
And for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers, I really hope you took away a lot in terms of awareness around the emotional experience of fundraising and the way curiosity can be our best friend. The world is changing around us quickly. Donors are changing, the philanthropic climate is changing, and when we become rigidly committed to what has happened in the past, we miss massive opportunities for the future. There were so many helpful takeaways from this episode, so head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast for the detailed show notes with all of the top tips and tricks, plus access to more free resources for my 15 years of fundraising. You'll also find more information there about Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, including links to all of her amazing work. Most importantly, thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners, especially you, and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. If you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.